This is the Christian Bro Code Podcast, episode number 24. This episode is going to be different from the previous 23 episodes in this way. Typically, I talk to you about some sort of a growth principle. I talk to you about something from, from the Bible, from Scripture that helps you in your spiritual growth. But today, today is going to be different. This episode is going to be different in that I'm going to share with you a little bit of my story, a little bit of my backstory. I'm going to tell you a little bit of who I am. And specifically, I'm going to share with you from a period of my life that lasted 18 years was a very significant and a very formative time of my life that had a major impact in the person, the minister, the man that I am today. So in this episode of the Christian Bro Code podcast, a little bit of my backstory. Welcome to the Christian Bro Code Podcast. If you've been listening for a while, thank you so much. I appreciate that you've taken the time to download these episodes and to listen to what I have to teach and what I have to say. I appreciate that very much. If this is the first time that you're tuning in to an episode of the Christian Bro Code Podcast, let me thank you as well for taking the time to download and to listen to these episodes. If you have a chance, I'd love to invite you to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're always up to date when I put out a new episode. And just by the way, I also have a YouTube channel, the Christian Bro Code YouTube channel. That's pretty much identical to what I'm doing in the podcast, just in video form. But I also have another channel called Equipped. Now, if you're a person who has some sort of ministry responsibility of equipping or training or teaching other believers, then my YouTube channel, Equipped, is definitely for you because on that channel, it's very different from the Christian Bro Code. It's different in that I I teach formal Bible study methods, and and I talk about passages of Scripture, and I walk through passages of Scripture to see what they mean, what they're talking about, and how you can use those studies that I do in order to continue ministering and equipping the people who are under your ministry or under your responsibility. So I'm going to leave a link in the show notes of this episode so that you can access both the Christian Bro Code YouTube channel and the, the, the other YouTube channel that I do called Equipped. Now, let me get into what I want to talk about, my, a little bit of my of my backstory, if you will. Now, obviously, it would take many, many, many episodes to tell you all of my life, so I've decided to narrow it down to one specific period of my life, but it was a very significant period of my life. Like I said, it lasted for 18 years, started in 1993, and officially ended in 2011. What happened during that period of time? Well, that was the period of time that I was in school. And by school, I mean after high school. That was my my Bible school, my Bible university, my seminary days. It lasted 18 years, 1993 all the way to 2011. And it was, it was uh, probably in about 1991 or 1992 that I felt a call to full-time ministry. And, and, you know, my, my parents aren't ministers, they're not pastors. I, I am currently a pastor, and I've been in ministry for the bulk of my adult life. My parents are not ministers, they're not pastors, but they did always serve in the churches that we attended. They were always active in local church ministry, and for that reason, I, I have a passion for local church ministry, and that'll, that'll come up later as I talk to you later in this episode. But when I was about 16, 17, somewhere around there, I felt a call to full-time ministry. 
And in talking with my pastor at the time, talking with other people uh, about what I was feeling, that I felt that I wanted to go into full-time ministry, I didn't know exactly what it is that I wanted to do, didn't know if I wanted to be a pastor or an evangelist. I, I had no clue. I just knew that I wanted to be in full-time ministry in some form of ministry. And, and I thank God for the people who were in my life at that time because they were so encouraging, including my parents. They were very encouraging in telling me that I should pursue that call, that I should go to Bible school. Now, as a side note, my dad, when he first found out about my call to ministry, he did struggle with it. He, he didn't necessarily want me to go into ministry. He wanted me to pursue something else, some kind of a professional career. But the Lord spoke to him. The Lord dealt with him. And, and it came to the point where he said, God, he's yours. And, and if you've called him to ministry, then who am I to stand in the way? So since that moment, I, I have had the full support of my parents. My parents have been without a doubt, without a doubt, the most encouraging and the most supportive individuals when it came to me pursuing my call to full-time ministry and to pursuing education. So in 1993, I graduated from high school, and I went and I started my, my journey that would last 18 years. Of course, at the moment, I didn't know that that journey was going to last 18 years. In 1993, I enrolled at, at Latin American Bible Institute in San Antonio, Texas, a Bible institute that had been around for many, many years, had an excellent, solid reputation for training pastors and evangelists and missionaries. It started off uh, in, in El Paso, Texas. Well, it has a, a long history. Uh, but I, I went to Latin American Bible Institute in San Antonio, Texas, and that's where I began getting my first bits of training for ministry, learning on a more formal and a more systematic way about the Bible. Of course, I had been in church for most of my life, so I had heard all the Bible stories. But, but it's different when you go to Bible school, because they begin telling you and teaching you some additional things that you didn't learn in Sunday school. And uh, I, I began there, and I, I started to enjoy it very much. But I felt that I wanted something a bit more. Now, when I say that, I, that's not to criticize Latin American Bible Institute, not, not in any way. Those, those years that I spent there were incredibly beneficial to my formation of my, of my future ministry. But I knew that I wanted something a bit, a bit more. So at Latin American Bible Institute, and I'll call it LEBI for short, at LEBI, uh, it's a three-year certificate or diploma program. And, and I knew that I wanted a, a college degree, a university degree. So I didn't finish LEBI. I didn't graduate from LEBI. Instead, after two years at LEBI, I transferred to a Bible university. And it's because I discovered some sort of a passion while I was at LEBI. I discovered that I, I, I began to develop this curiosity for biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek. And at the time, LABI didn't offer Hebrew or Greek, and so I, I knew that I wanted to pursue that, and I wanted to pursue biblical studies, and that was, that was beginning to become an interest of mine. And so there was a school just outside of Dallas, there is a school just outside of Dallas in Waxahachie, Texas, and the name of that school is Southwestern Assemblies of God University. And so I transferred, after two years at LABI, I transferred to uh, SAGU, that, that's the acronym, Southwestern Assemblies of God University, SAGU, or S-A-G-U. I transferred there, and that's where I finished my first degree. 
And while I was there, I, I just, I, I developed this curiosity, this interest, this love, this passion for biblical studies. It was there at Sagu that I took my first, my very first course in biblical languages. I took Biblical Greek, Introduction to Biblical Greek, one of the most difficult classes I had ever taken in my life. I, I had never taken a formal language class, uh, aside from what you take in high school, you know, English and Spanish, but I had never had to take on learning a new language. I grew up speaking both English and Spanish, so it, it wasn't really difficult for me. But in talking about biblical Greek, we're talking about something that was completely foreign to me. I had never in my life read, heard, spoken, nothing about biblical Greek. And so I was learning a completely, completely new language, new alphabet, new phonetics. I mean, just everything was completely different. And it was, for me, an incredible challenge, a, a huge, huge challenge for me. And, and in fact, I remember that when we started the class, the first semester on the first day, if I remember correctly, there were about 12 students in the class. Now, Sagu isn't a tiny university. It's not a, a enormous university, but 12 students in a class, that, that's a pretty small class to begin with. And the, the class on Biblical Greek lasted two semesters. So it was part one in the fall semester, part two in the spring semester. We started with 12 students. And by the end of the year, by the end of the second semester, there were only three students left in the class. From 12 all the way down to three. And the three of us who were in there, we pretty much had to be in there because biblical Greek was required for our degree program. I mean, if I didn't take biblical Greek, I would not have graduated from college. And so we went from, from 12 students at the beginning of the year to three students by the end of the year. And I've got to say that that was such a difficult class for me. In addition to taking Biblical Greek, I was also taking some other classes on systematic theology, taking classes on, on Bible, uh, Bible books of the Bible, like uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I took class, uh, classes on apocalyptic literature, Daniel and Revelation, took other classes, Romans and Galatians, uh, all those kind of the, the, the prophets, Old Testament theology, New Testament theology, which by the way, New Testament theology with Dr. John Wyckoff was one of my favorite classes ever. I just, I loved that class, absolutely loved that class. And as I'm taking all of these classes, I, uh, I start, again, to develop a curiosity and a passion for biblical studies. Now, let me digress here just a little bit and, and tell you about an experience I had in college that had I, had I followed up on that experience, things would have been completely, I mean, completely different for me right now than, than how they currently are. Now, at, at Southwestern Assemblies of God University at Sagu, there was a very, very small Hispanic student population. I, I mean, a tiny Hispanic student population, maybe not even 10%. I, I don't think there were even that many Hispanics on the college campus. And, uh, and so there were very, very few Hispanics. Now, I grew up in El Paso, Texas. If you don't know where El Paso, Texas is, it's as far west Texas as you can possibly get. And El Paso borders with Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. It's it's right on the border. You it it's there's maybe 
got 50 feet that separate Juarez from Mexico. It is on the border. So there is a very strong Mexican cultural influence on El Paso. Everybody in El Paso speaks Spanish. Everybody. Everybody in El Paso has family in Juarez. I mean, it's, that's just the type of city that it is. And, and everybody in El Paso, even though we don't know it, everybody in El Paso has a, a very strong accent. <laughs> when we speak English, we have an accent, except we don't realize it because we're surrounded by people who, who have that same accent. Well, I didn't know that I had an accent. And so, you know, I go up to Sagu, and, and of course, I, I think I, I speak English well, and uh, I, I don't realize that I have an accent. And then one day, we were there with a group of friends, and, and uh, one, of them, one of them told me, uh, Hey, Mario, you, you want to go out and get something to eat? That just a very heavy, a very exaggerated Spanish accent speaking English. Now, mind you, this was an Anglo person. This was a person who didn't speak English. And, and I just kind of chuckled and I said, oh, man, that, that's funny. I wonder who he's imitating, right? Again, mind you, I didn't know that I had an accent. So I'm thinking, <laughs> I wonder who's like, who is he imitating? And then it kind of dawned on me. He says, wait a minute, he's imitating me. Like to him, that's how I sound. I, I may not... I may not sound that way to myself. I may not hear myself that way, but to him, to them, that's how I sound. That was the first time that I realized that I speak with an when I speak English, I speak with an accent. Now, I don't know if you hear it or not. It depends on if you're an English speaker or a Spanish speaker. I don't know. But I, I learned that I speak with a with an accent when I speak English. And there were some experiences that I went through. At Southwestern, that that really, tr- you know, they, they tried me. They 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 made things difficult for me because I was the first person in my family, in both sides of my family, mom, dad, and then extended cousins, as far as you could think, first one to go to college. So I had nobody I could call and talk to and say, "Hey, man, how do you deal with this? You know, how do you do this in college? How do you, how do you navigate this? How do you navigate the other?" And I can remember very distinctly that there were some times that I felt like going home. I just I just wanted to go home because it was such a cultural shock for me. It was such a a, a different world, a completely different world than what I had known for the first 18 years of my life. So much so that on more than one occasion I I wanted to go home. And it wasn't just being homesick. It was just, it was such a different world for me that I didn't feel that I knew how to navigate that world. It was so different and so foreign to me that, the, and, and you know, I just had nobody that I could reach out to who, who had that similar experience as what I was experiencing at that moment. It just, it just made things very difficult for me. But Thank God that that I, I stuck it out. You know, I, I I stayed there and I stuck it out, and and I'm glad I stuck it out because, like I said, had I decided to go home, my life today would be very different. Obviously, right? Those major decisions in your life, of course, they make things different. But the reason, uh, or the additional reason that I'm glad that I stuck it out, is that that love and that passion, that curiosity, that interest in biblical studies, just grew more and more and more. And the the more classes I took. On, on the Bible and on theology and biblical theology, systematic theology, the more my passion, my love, my interest, my curiosity in that type of study began to grow. So it was about late in my junior year that I decided that I wanted more. 
I, I decided that I that I wanted to continue learning that that the professors at Southwestern had just sparked this incredible flame inside of me for growth and for learning more about Bible and biblical studies and etc. They they had just done such an excellent job in in starting this this spark this flame inside of me that I knew that I wanted more. And so in my senior year of of college, I started looking at different seminaries places where they teach you more about ministry and, and deeper biblical and theological studies. I started looking at seminaries and, and uh, departments of religion in different schools all over the country, and I ended up choosing going to a, a place not very far from where I was at the moment. I chose Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and, and I, I enrolled there as soon as I graduated from college in 1997, I graduated in the spring of 1997. In the summer of 1997, I enrolled in my very first class for my master's degree at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And something significant happened in that very first summer semester at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, here's what happened. When I enrolled at seminary, I, I had decided that I was going to pursue a specialization in New Testament studies. I had fallen in love with the New Testament. I already mentioned that New Testament theology was one of my favorite classes. And so I decided that I wanted to pursue, become a specialist in New Testament studies. One of the very first classes that I took that summer semester of 1997 at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary was a class titled Biblical Backgrounds and Archaeology. The professor in that class was Thomas V. Briscoe, Dr. Thomas V. Briscoe, Briscoe, a phenomenal teacher, a man who knew biblical history and biblical archaeology backwards and forwards and and transmitted his knowledge with such passion to his students. Well, in that first semester, I sat in that class, Biblical Backgrounds and Archaeology with Dr. Thomas V. Briscoe, and that class absolutely transformed my life. That class was a class on biblical history, Old Testament and New Testament, but because there's just more centuries to cover in biblical history that relate to the Old Testament than to the New Testament, the bulk of the class dealt with Old Testament history. So we we talked about Old Testament history, the New Testament history, and the intertestamental period, that's the period between the Old and the New Testament. But again, because there's just so much more time uh, in the Old Testament, the bulk of the class had to do with Old Testament history. And Dr. Briscoe presented Old Testament history with such passage, I'm sorry, passion and and insight and such knowledge that that his, his, his love and his passion for the Old Testament was so contagious. And as I'm sitting in that class, something new happened in me, and I said, wait a minute, I I hadn't been exposed to this kind of stuff before. This is absolutely amazing. And in that moment, I can almost recall exactly where I was sitting. It was a large room, lots of students in there, and Dr. Briscoe was lecturing on archaeology. He was lecturing on archaeology. And, and it had to do with the Old Testament. And, and it just blew my mind. I mean, it just blew my mind. And right there at that moment, I said, I'm pursuing Old Testament studies. I, I'm, I'm changing. I'm not going to do New Testament. I'm going to pursue Old Testament studies. That one class did it for me. It just, it just blew me away. I wanted to pursue 
Old Testament studies. Now, fortunately, I was early on in my program. It was barely my first semester, so I hadn't done a whole bunch of New Testament classes. So it was very easy for me to just focus on Old Testament classes. And so for the remainder of my degree, for my Master of Arts degree, I, I did the as many Old Testament classes as I could. Now, just as part of the degree of any seminary, I had to do some New Testament classes. I had to do some classes in theology, systematic theology. I had to do classes in church history and pastoral counseling. But I was able to do the bulk of my classes in Old Testament studies. So I took classes on Joshua, on Judges and Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, the book of Amos, the book of Joel, Hosea. I mean, I took just as many classes as I could in the Old Testament. And it was also there at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary that I took my first year of biblical Hebrew. Now, at Southwestern, in my bachelor's degree is where I did my first year of Greek, but it was at the seminary where I did my first year of Hebrew, biblical Hebrew. And I also had to do, a se- in order to graduate, I had to do a second year of biblical Greek. So I did my second year of Greek at the seminary and my first year of Hebrew at the seminary. And I, I just fell so in love with the Old Testament. As part of my degree program, I had to write a master's thesis. And so I decided to choose a portion of the Old Testament as the subject of my master's thesis. Now, I fell in love with the Old Testament, but where, where I just really fell in love, my passion became that section of the Old Testament that we commonly refer to as the minor prophets, from Hosea to Malachi. Now, in academic circles, we refer to that as the Book of the Twelve, the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets, it's the same thing. I, I fell completely in love with that section of Scripture right there, and particularly at that time with the Book of Amos. And so I wrote my master's thesis on the Book of Amos. Now now get this, here's, here's, here's what the title of my master's thesis is, okay? Master's thesis, this was my title, The Prophet Amos's Use of Israel's Legal and Cultic Traditions. Now, you'll have to read the thesis to know what that means, but I I just fell in love with that that book, that writing of the Prophet Amos, that section of the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, the Old Testament in general. It just gripped me. It grabbed my mind. It grabbed my heart, and I said, I I love this stuff, and I I just want to pursue this more. I, I, I just loved it. And so as I was finishing up my master's program and writing my thesis, I knew that I wanted more. I I wanted more. I I loved this stuff so much, and I knew that I wanted more. And so I started looking for doctoral programs. I started looking to do a PhD in biblical studies specializing in Old Testament. And so I, you know, I'm finishing up my master's program, and at the same time, I'm beginning to make applications to different schools for a PhD. I applied right there at the same school where I was doing my master's, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. They also have a fantastic PhD program. I applied there. I applied to uh, Baylor University because some of the professors that I had known had done their degrees, their PhDs at Baylor University, talked great about Baylor, great experiences at Baylor. So I applied at Baylor University. I applied at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, not the university, but the seminary. I applied there. I applied at, at different places to do a PhD. And that first time that I applied, I was finishing my master's degree, writing my thesis, and applying for my PhD program. That first time, I was rejected. Every single school I applied to rejected me. They said, uh, sorry, thank you, but no thank you. 
please consider applying sometime in the future. And I was, I was dejected. I mean, when I got that reject, the rejection letter from each school that I applied to, it, it was a blow to my ego. I mean, I, here I was thinking, man, I'm doing a master's degree, man, I'm, I'm doing great. I, I've taken Hebrew and blah, 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 and all this stuff, right? But e- each school that I applied to, I received a rejection letter from each one of the schools that I applied to. And, and that kind of, that messes with you. That messes with your brain. I'm sure that you've been through something similar where there's something that you feel called to do. There's something that you really want to pursue, something that you really want to do. And, and then for whatever reason, it just doesn't work out. That messes with your brain. And so, you know, I had to wait another year before I could apply again. Now, in that time, I got married and we had our first baby. Babe, that sounded weird, right? I, we had our first baby. And so uh, in 2001, now I graduated with my master's degree in December of 1997. I'm, I'm sorry, December of 1999. Got married in January, and then I applied again, and I applied to the same schools. Now I, I studied, I did some additional things. There are some tests that you have to take to get a, uh, uh, accepted to a PhD program. The test known as the GRE, that's part of the, the exam. I didn't do well on it the first time, so I took it again, studied, prepared. And the second time around that I applied, I applied pretty much to the same schools, Southwestern Baptist, uh, Baylor University, and Princeton Theological Seminary. The second time around, I was accepted to all three schools for the PhD program, and I was ecstatic. I was like, this is it. I mean, I, I love this. I, I, you know, I can't believe I get to do this. This is fantastic. I, oh, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I was just so excited, and I decided to choose Baylor University as a place where I would do my PhD program. It wasn't far from where we were living. We were living in, in Waco, Te- I'm, I'm sorry, in Fort Worth, Texas at the time. Baylor was in Waco, just about an hour and a half away. And so we had just had our first baby, and and we decided that we were going to choose Baylor as a place where I would do my PhD program. I, and I, I'm so glad. I know that I would have enjoyed any school that I would have chosen, but I'm just so glad that I chose to do my PhD at Baylor. My My first daughter was born. And literally one week after she was born, we drove from Fort Worth to Waco. We moved into our house at Waco one week after my daughter was born. And just a few months later, a few weeks later, I started my first class in my PhD program. It was an overwhelming experience. It, it was, it was, I mean, and I mean that in, in a very good way, but it was still a very overwhelming experience because now you're 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 studying at the highest academic level that there is. The PhD is the highest academic level that there is. And and now you're there. And you're you're studying with brilliant professors, professors who in my case had degrees from uh, Harvard, had degrees from Oxford, from Cambridge, had degrees from very prestigious seminaries and universities. And these are your professors. These are your professors. And they expect a certain something from you, right? Because you're not doing a bachelor's anymore. You're not doing a master's anymore. You're doing a PhD. They, they expect more from you. The work is a lot more demanding. And not only that, but you're dealing with other students who are brilliant, absolutely brilliant, that you sit in a room with these people and, and man, it's very easy to feel intimidated, not just by the professors, but the, the caliber of students that are around the room with you. And so it was It was a very eye-opening, very sobering experience for me to know that 
hey, you're not the smartest guy in the room. Not that I ever was, but th- here in this case, it was very, very apparent that I was not the smartest person in the room. And and here's here's what I noticed that that because uh, I'm, I'm proud of this, right? I'm very proud of this. That in my bachelor's program there were very few Hispanics. In my master's program there were even fewer Hispanics. In the PhD program I was the only Hispanic. I mean, th- there there just weren't any other Hispanics in the PhD program. And and if you look on a on a national level, just regardless of ethnicities. It's a very low percentage of people who earn a PhD. I think it's somewhere like 4% of the United States population has a PhD. And when you dig a bit deeper and you see of those 4%, how many are Hispanics? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a very small percentage of people who earn a PhD who are Hispanics. So I was there in this, in this program, the only Hispanic, just a very new situation for me, very new experience for me, loving every moment of it, but definitely the hardest thing that I had done up to that point in my life. Now, very important to note here is that throughout my bachelor's, throughout my master's, and throughout my PhD program, at every stage of my academic career, I was involved in local church ministry. And I say that as a point of pride because for me... As I mentioned earlier in the episode, my parents, although they weren't pastors, they were always very involved in local church ministry. They were always serving. And so I saw my parents serve. I saw I saw how they served. They you know that they never they never forced me to serve at church. You know, we had to go to church, but they never forced me to serve, but they they taught me to serve by their example. I, I would just see them serving all the time at church. I mean, it was a passion for them. It was a love for them to serve at the church. And so I saw that, and I learned to love to serve at the local church just by watching the passion and that love that my parents had for serving at the local church. So throughout my entire academic journey, bachelor's, master's, and PhD program, every single one of those stages, no matter at which church I was attending— I was serving. And and when I was married, I was married by the time I did my PhD program. My wife and I, we served in the churches that we were attending. At the time that I was in Waco, we attended First Spanish Assembly of God. And, and we served in that church since the moment we got there to the moment that we left. We served in that church. I mean, we, we taught Sunday school. My wife did children's church. When she did VBS, Vacation Bible School for Kids, I would have to dress up as different characters from the Bible or just whatever. I mean, here I am doing a PhD program at Baylor University. And then on the weekends, I'm dressing up and I'm putting on makeup and putting on wigs and all these other, other clothing and, and costumes for the kids, right? I mean, doing it for for just local church ministry. We also there was there was this uh, the church that we were attending had different hallways and different wings, and and you know the the pastor put out a call and said, hey, we need people who would volunteer to come clean the church. And so I told my wife, hey, we we've got to do that. Now I had grown up seeing my my parents serve, but also seeing my parents clean church. I mean, they would clean the church. And so when, when the pastor said, hey, we need people to help us come clean the church on Thursday night to clean this wing of the church, I told my wife, I'm going to tell the pastor that we're going to do it. And so every Thursday night for, for a stretch of months, we would go every Thursday night, we'd take our, our two-year-old daughter with us, we would vacuum, we would clean restrooms, we would clean classrooms, set up tables. I mean, we, we just loved serving at the local church. It, we just, we counted it such an honor, such a privilege to be able to serve 
at the local church. I, we didn't think twice about it. I didn't, I didn't care that I was doing a PhD program and say, no, that, that's beneath me. No, it was like, it's my honor. It's my privilege. I get to serve at the local church. And, and so and just at every stage, we were serving at our local church. It's just something that's it's part of our DNA as a family. And so I was there in Waco. My family and I, we were there in Waco for three years. And that in those three years, I was doing my coursework. You have to take classes. And so th- these three years, I, I just can't explain how much I grew in those three years. And it was actually in those three years, one of the classes that I took, that I got my first F ever on an assignment. I turned in a research paper, and the professor returned it to me with a big F on it saying, rewrite this paper, research it better. And, and I had never in my college, seminary, or even up to that point in my PhD program, I had never received an F on an assignment. It, it devastated me. I felt embarrassed. I, I couldn't look this professor in the eye. I just, I felt embarrassed. So I got that paper and I went back and I re-researched and I rewrote it and I turned it in. Now, because of that rewrite, the, the highest I could get was a B, but I think I got like a B or a B minus or something like that. But it, it, was, it was a difficult experience for me. I learned so much. I, I took a whole lot more classes on reading biblical Hebrew. I took a lot more classes on, on ancient Israel, the history of ancient Israel, the development of Israel's history. I had to take some classes in New Testament and theology and church history. All of those classes just... They're just so good because, again, I was taking classes with people who were at the very top of their fields in their particular areas of expertise. So even though I was taking classes in areas that weren't my specialty, they were outside of Old Testament, because the people teaching those classes were so passionate and so knowledgeable about the areas they were teaching, I enjoyed those classes very much, and and I still draw so much on the information that I learned from those classes in my ministry today. But the bulk of my classes had to do with Old Testament. That was my specialization, Hebrew Bible and Old Testament. And, and I continued with my passion on that section of Scripture that I mentioned, the, the Minor Prophets or the Book of the Twelve. I continued to develop a passion and a love. And any opportunity I had in one of my classes, now at the doctoral level at Baylor, they're not called classes, they're called seminars. At any, in any seminar, if I had a chance to write a research paper, I would write it on something having to do with the Minor Prophets. The book of Amos, the book of Joel, the book of something having to do with the Minor Prophets. If I had an opportunity, I would write my research paper on something having to do with the Minor Prophets. And that love for the Minor Prophets and, and the, or the Book of the Twelve, it just, it just grew deeper and deeper. And I just fell more and more in love with that section of Scripture right there. Absolutely loved it. And after three years, I completed my coursework. Now, that's, that's pretty typical. It takes The average PhD student will take about three years to finish their coursework. After those three years, you enter into a different phase of the PhD program, and different schools call it different things. At Baylor, they call it comprehensive exams or qualifying exams. I think at Baylor, it's qualifying exams, actually. But what it is, is at the end of your three years of coursework, you then have to take a series of exams that are based on the courses that you took over the past three years. And so I think I think it was, I don't know, four or five exams that, that I had to take after my coursework, uh, qualifying exams. And each one of those exams lasted, if if I'm not mistaken, a minimum of two hours, and it could go all the way to four hours, something like that. It was it was like it was incredible. And and here's what makes it all the more incredible: that in those two to three hours, you're answering only one or two questions. It's not like a multiple choice. It's not a ten pages of 
of questions that you're just answering or short essay. No, no. You get two questions, maybe three questions, and you write everything you've learned, everything you know on that one question, you write, and you write, and you write. And when you think you're done writing, you write some more. And so I had to take classes, uh, or the exams that I presented were uh, New Testament, theology, and the most the the bulk of my exams were Old Testament. So I had to answer questions on Old Testament. That lasted for about three or four days. Just imagine three or four days of exams that last between two and three hours. I, I mean, at the end of the day, I was burnt out. I was exhausted by the end of the day. And on top of that, there was also one of the exams on the on the Old Testament part of things is that they give you a passage of scripture, or actually several passages of scripture in Hebrew, and you have to translate from Hebrew into English. And and when I say translate, you had to go through every word and you had to parse every single word. When I say parse, you have to come to each word, and if it's a verb, you have to parse the verb, meaning you have to say uh, what tense it's in, the stem of the verb, the person, the the voice. I mean, every, you had to completely dissect every single verb in the passage and get it correct. And so it, it was just... Uh, it was just three or four days of pressure, of stress, of exhaustion, and then you just wait for a couple of days to see if you passed, to see if you did well enough in those exams to pass. Now, after my three years of coursework, I took some time to study for my qualifying exams. And so I, I should have been done with my PhD program a lot more quickly than I did it in, a lot sooner. It took me 10 years to finish my PhD program. And part of that was, well, you know, I had a family, I had to work, but after my three years of coursework, I took, I don't remember now if it was two or three years, I took that time to study for my exams. I I took that long. It should not have taken me that long, okay? There were friends of mine who finished their entire program while I was still studying. I mean, we started at the same time, and they finished their entire program while I was still studying for my qualifying exams. That's where I was telling you where I found out I was not the smartest person in the room. But it took me two or three years just to study for the exams that I had to take. Now, mind you, I had to pay tuition every single one of those semesters that I was preparing. So, and it was it was just a lot of pressure. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm having to pay every single semester and I'm not taking any classes. I'm just studying for exams. I, I mean, I need, to, I need to move this along. So finally, after two or three years of studying, I was finally able to take those exams, and I passed the exams. And when you finish the exams, you then move on to the final stage of your PhD. That's where you write what's called a dissertation. It's like a master's thesis, but it's, it's called a dissertation at the doctoral level. And so I wrote my dissertation. And, and uh, there was a fantastic experience that happened to me when I was writing my doctoral dissertation. I, uh, I had uh, requested from this one professor if he would be my dissertation advisor. You have to have like a supervisor or a, a mentor who is guiding you throughout the dissertation project. And I asked this one professor if he would be my dissertation supervisor, and he agreed. But th- there were there were just some problems. I ran into some problems in that he just he wasn't responding to my emails. I couldn't get a hold of him, and so it was delaying the 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 progress that I was trying to make on my dissertation. And so I requested to be transferred to be reassigned to a different advisor, and so I was granted that request. And the second advisor, he he was a lot more responsive. He was very supportive. And I was only with him for, I don't know, a month or two when something 
in my mind, something divine happened. Something that, that stands out in my mind, like one of those moments where God orchestrates something, something happened to me like that. Like that. Because when I was already on my second advisor, a professor arrived at Baylor. Baylor University, the Department of Religion, they hired a new professor, a man by the name of Dr. James Nagalski. Now, that name was very significant to me. The name Dr. James Nagalski was very significant to me. Because Dr. James Nagalski, at the time and still to this day, was one of the foremost leading scholars in, guess what? The Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets. And he arrived at Baylor to be a professor in the Department of Religion at Baylor. Now, over the past several years, I had been reading books and articles that Dr. Nagalski had written on the Book of Amos, on the Book of Joel, on the Book of Malachi. I mean, just he had written so much on that section of Scripture that I had fallen in love with, with the Minor Prophets. And then he arrives at Baylor to become a professor at Baylor. And I had already switched an advisor. I was on my second advisor, but I went to my second advisor and I said, his name is Dr. Bellinger. I said, Dr. Bellinger, you know that for the past years I've been working on the Minor Prophets, and now Dr. Nagalski is here. Would you mind if I switched over to Dr. Nagalski so, so that he could be my dissertation supervisor? And Dr. Bellinger said, I was going to talk to you about that. I think it's the best thing for you to have Dr. Nagalski be your dissertation supervisor. And, and I, just, I just remember just this, this flood of relief, of excitement, of exhilaration coming over me because I was going to be able to work directly under the supervision of a scholar, of a man whose work I had been reading for the past seven years. I mean, a man who, without exaggeration, was a foremost, a leading scholar in the Minor Prophets, and now he was going to be guiding me on my dissertation for my PhD. It, it, was, it was absolutely phenomenal. Now, just a little side note, when you write a dissertation, you have to write a proposal, right, of what your dissertation is going to be, and then you have to write what's called a prospectus, which is a 10-page thing. This is at Baylor, uh, which is a 10-page, uh, call it a research paper that gives more detail about what your, your dissertation is going to be about. Now, I wrote the, the, the prospectus before Dr. Nagalski arrived at Baylor. And in, in my prospectus, I referenced Dr. Nagalski. And mind you, this was before I had met him. And so I wrote something like this about Dr. Nagalski. I wrote something like this, like, now Nagalski almost gets it right when he says, blah, 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 whatever it is that I wrote about. I wrote, he almost gets it right or something to that effect. And so in my very first meeting with Dr. Nagalski, he says, now I read your prospectus and I noticed that right here you wrote that I almost get it right. What did you mean by that? Now he was just messing with me, right? He wasn't being serious. Dr. Nagalski is just a phenomenal man. He was just messing with me, but I just kind of froze for a second and I was like, uh, 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 he said, I'm messing with you. Don't worry. No, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about these things. And so just from the very start, he was just such an approachable man, just phenomenal, I mean, just a godly man. I, it, it, this is why I think that this, is, this was God who just orchestrated all of that. So now here I am working on my doctoral dissertation under the supervision of Dr. James Nagalski. If you Google his name, James Nagalski, it's not a very common name, you'll just see the books and the articles that he's written and how he's just a leading scholar in the Book of the Twelve in the Minor Prophets. The man is respected literally worldwide, and here I am getting to work under his supervision. 
And so I'm, I'm writing chapter after chapter on my dissertation, and I'm sending it to Dr. Nagalski. He's sending it back to me. Hey, you might want to tighten it up here. You, mean, you need to research this. Here's an article that you need to reference. You need to read this article. Here's a chapter in a book that you should look into. I think it's going to help your argument, all these things. And even there were some times that he said, hey, I wrote an article on this very thing that you're talking about. It hasn't been published yet. It's going to be published in a few months, but here's a copy of it. You can use it in your dissertation. Or I wrote a chapter in a book. It hasn't been published yet, but here, reference it, and then just cite it in your footnotes that it's forthcoming. And I'm just, I'm blown away by all of this, right? And he's giving me all of this expert guidance. He's just helping me along in my dissertation. And of course, I have to do the work, but I have this expert, this leading scholar who is guiding me through this entire process. Now, the thing about a dissertation is this, that this is, this is how a dissertation is typically described in, in the academic circles. When you write a PhD dissertation, here's the expectation that you are, you, are, you are making an original contribution to the field of study. So in my case, Old Testament studies. My dissertation is supposed to be an original contribution to the field of Old Testament studies. Now, that and I don't know if my PhD dissertation was that or not. I have no clue. But all I know is that Dr. Nogalski guided me expertly in writing that doctoral dissertation. And so I'm done with the dissertation, and you, you submit your dissertation, and then comes what's called the dissertation defense. You have to defend what you wrote. And so you're in a room, in a conference room, with, uh, if I'm not mistaken, let me see, there were one, two, three, four, like five or six professors from Baylor, and and you're all in a room, and you're there sitting at the head of the table, and you're there to defend your dissertation. They've all received copies of your dissertation. They've all read your dissertation. They're all experts in their field, and so they're going to ask you questions related to your dissertation, but it's probably going to come from the perspective of their field and all, and all that stuff. So you're in that room with, with, with uh, scholars, with experts, with brilliant men and women, and they're going to ask you to defend what you've written. And I think in all my program, that was the most stressful, the most nerve-wracking experience that I had in my entire PhD program, the, the defense of the dissertation. I'm sitting there, and they're just asking me questions. On page 42, you wrote this. On, on the footnote in page 110, you wrote this. Uh, did you consider that? Did you consider the other? And they're just asking you question after question about your dissertation, and you have to answer. You you are supposedly the expert in that topic that you wrote about, and so these other experts are asking the quote-unquote expert, me, about this or that or the other, and, and, and you do not feel like an expert in the moment. When you've got these six men and women who are experts and are brilliant and have studied uh, so much more than you have, they probably have forgotten more stuff than I've learned, you don't feel like an expert, even in a topic that you have researched and that you've written and that you know inside and out, you don't feel like an expert in that moment. And I can remember sitting in that chair, and I can remember that there were drops of sweat just going down my back as I'm sitting there defending my dissertation. I, I, can, I can remember that has never happened to me before. I mean, unless I'm playing basketball or some kind of sport, yeah, I get all sweaty, but there's never been a moment that I've felt so much pressure that I'm sitting, just sitting in a room, air-conditioned room, mind you, and that I could feel the beads of sweat dripping down my back. It, it, it was an intense time for me. And, and to add to that, you're in a room 
and and I don't know if they do this. I, I don't think they do it for intimidation purposes. But you're in a room, and all the dissertations that have been written in the Department of Religion, they're on a bookshelf up against the wall. All the dissertations are there, are there kind of saying like, "Is yours going to make it up here?" You know, kind of like that. So it it was it was a nerve wracking experience, and uh, I'm sitting there in my defense. And then you you leave the room, and they deliberate, and then they let you know if if you've successfully defended your dissertation, they can ask you to go back and rewrite your dissertation, or to rewrite significant portions, or they can just flat out fail you. And thankfully, they they did send it back to me. There were a couple of minor, I mean, nothing major at all, minor corrections that I had to make but I successfully defended my dissertation, and and now it was just time to graduate. So I got all of that done, and in May of 2011, 18 years after I started at LABI in 1993, in Waco, Texas, I walked across the stage and received my PhD, one of the proudest moments of my life. Now, I, I tell you all of that, all of that that backstory that I'm telling you, just so you could see the progress of how things started very small, not even knowing when I started back in 1993 at LEBI, not even knowing where all of this was going to end up. I had no clue back in 1993 that God was going to direct my path and take me, take me, take me, take me all the way to the end to, to complete a PhD. And, and by the way, it took me... 10 years to finish my PhD. I started in 2001, and I finished just my PhD from 2001 to 2011. Yeah, just the PhD. It should have been done a lot more quickly. It's, I, I should have finished it in five, maybe six years, but but I didn't. But, but, I, but I finished. You know, there's a, st- a statistic out there. I saw it in the Chronicle of Higher Education that 50% of all people who start a PhD program don't finish it. 50%. Either they, they just finish their coursework or they don't complete their exams, or more often than not, they don't finish their dissertation. 50% of all people who start a PhD don't finish it. And so even though it took me 10 years, and by the way, Baylor has a 10-year time limit, I finished like literally the last year that I could finish. Again, not the smartest guy in the room. It took me 10 years, but but I finished. I finished. And it, it was one of the proudest moments of my life I and mean, one of the greatest achievements that I've, that I've accomplished in my life. And and all of that it 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 comes it, it comes from this passion this love that I have for scripture, for the Bible, and for teaching the Bible, and and for sharing insights and and knowledge from the Bible with people who also want to learn. Uh, and so when you hear me on the Christian Bro Code podcast, when you hear me on my YouTube channel, equipped, you're just going to see. I hope it transmits the love and the passion that I have for the Bible, for God's Word, and for the the life-changing truth of Scripture, and how Scripture is really all we need to conduct and to live our lives on this earth. And and I, I thank God because throughout those 18 years, my love and my passage, my, my passion for, for Scripture, it just went developing and growing and, and deepening more and more and more to the point that I said, I, I want to study this at the highest level possible. And and I'll tell you this, and you talk to any PhD student, anybody who holds a PhD, and I think they would probably express my same sentiment, that having a PhD, you are very aware of the fact that you really don't know a whole lot. You mean, you've studied a lot, you've read a lot, you've written a lot, you've learned a lot, 
And in all of that learning, the biggest lesson that you learn in all of that learning is that you don't know everything. The, the most significant lesson that you learn, that I learned throughout my entire academic journey and especially in my PhD, the most significant lesson that I learned is that there is still so much to learn and that the rest of my life is going to be another academic experience, another educational, another learning experience. I know because I've had the privilege of studying at the highest academic level possible, I know that there is still so much to learn, that there's no way that I am a quote-unquote expert in anything. There's just still too much out there to learn. There's just still so much mystery and depth in Scripture that I know that I've only begun to scratch the surface. And the more I study Scripture, the more I learn, the more I recognize that there's still so much to learn. But I'm excited about that. It excites me to know that I haven't learned at all. It excites me to know that there's still so much for me to learn. It excites me to know that there is so much truth, life-changing truth in the Bible that I, that I can and I will spend the rest of my life learning and uncovering deeper truth from God's Scripture, and that I will never I will never exhaust the truth that there is in Scripture. I know that the more I learn, the more there is to learn. And so I, I would encourage you, as you continue to grow, as you continue to dive deeper into God's Word, as you continue to learn more uh, spiritual growth principles, that with each new principle, each new thing that you learn, recognize that there's still so much to learn, that you never get to a point in your life where you stop learning. It just it just doesn't happen. If you reach that point in your life, something is very wrong. There's either some pride or some arrogance or some apathy, some indifference taking place because there's just no way any one of us, regardless of our education, regardless of the wealth of the experiences that we have, there's just absolutely no way that we could ever get to the point that we have learned it all. It's just not going to happen. And so I encourage you with that. And as you continue to listen to future episodes of the Christian Bro Code podcast, or as you go back and listen to previous episodes of the Christian Bro Code podcast, this, this portion of my backstory should inform you a lot of why I talk about the things that I talk about, why I'm so interested in growing, in spiritual growth, in personal development, because I learned throughout, throughout my academic journey that there's still a lot to learn. There's still so much more growth to take place. We haven't attained the, the, the height of our growth. There's still a lot, so much more to learn. And, and you'll go back and you'll see previous episodes and how I, I, I'm passionate about teaching things from the Bible and teaching things about spiritual growth. It's because that, that bug, it, it bit me. I still have that infection in me that I want to learn more, that it's not enough. What I've learned right now, it's not enough. And it's not about becoming smarter. It's not about showing off. No, no, no. It's that I know God has so much more for me to learn because he wants to take me to such higher places that that I need to learn how to get to those higher places. And so this, this backstory or this portion of my backstory should inform you, should, should give you some insight into why I talk about the things I talk about in the Christian Bro Code, why I'm so passionate 
about growth and about continuous growth, spiritual growth, and, and any kind of growth. I'm passionate about that because there is still so much to learn. Well, I know that in future episodes, I'll, I'll be sharing some, some different parts of my backstory. I want you to get to know me a little bit more. Maybe they won't be as, length, as lengthy as, as this particular episode was, but in future episodes, I will share more portions of, of my backstory with you, let you little, know a little bit more about where I've served, how I've served, and what God has taught me throughout the years. But for today, I wanted to share with you this particular portion, this period of my life, of my backstory that academic, those 18 years of academic growth and that academic journey that I took for 18 years. And uh, I'm, I'm so incredibly proud of that. I'm, I'm glad that God took me down that route. I wouldn't change it for anything. Well, that's it for this episode. And uh, if, if you haven't done so yet, I'd encourage you, I'd ask you to subscribe to the podcast. Also go over to the Christian Bro Code YouTube channel and the YouTube channel called Equipped. Subscribe there as well. That way you can always be up to date on the teachings that I that I produce on a weekly basis. Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless.